Well, for our uh, second reading and our text to let's turn again to the book of Exodus and chapter 17. That's the second book in the Bible, page 110. Exodus 17. And uh, returning to where we were in the morning, and that's the first battle that the people of God were called to fight after coming out of Egypt. Significantly, they are not the aggressors. The aggressors are the Amalekites. And we read of that attack from verse 8. So let's read at verse 8. Exodus 17, verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, which is the Bible in its embryo form, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And that whole incident, as it is summed up really in the words of verse 15, where after the battle Moses builds an altar in commemoration of the victory they got there from God, and he names that altar Jehovah Nissi, or the Lord is my banner. Now, as I mentioned in the morning, we're considering this battle here, just a, an actual earthly battle, nonetheless as primarily a spiritual battle. It's a battle between the Lord's people and their spiritual enemies. And these enemies are, first of all, the devil himself, who is the prince of all principalities and powers, and along with them there are these principalities and powers who are under his own sway and under his direction. And of course, sad to say, there is an unbelieving world too, which lies in the grip of the wicked one. And so the Lord's people have enemies really on all sides, especially these myriads of unseen, demonic, spiritual intelligences who are doing the devil's work constantly. Now as we saw in the morning, the, these powers of evil are fighting always for every square inch of territory in the world. And whenever they lose a square inch, they want that square inch back. They're not just fighting for the souls of men, women and children. They also fight for every institution in the land, for control of governments and control of nations. The Bible is full of that kind of thing. And in the morning we looked at the enemy strategy, which 
isn't really apparent in Exodus 17, but we saw that it comes through in Deuteronomy 25. We saw that the motive of these evil powers, first of all, is simply that of hatred. Hatred of God, and therefore hatred of God's people. That is their primary motive. Love is the strongest motive of all. (coughs) Hate is a close second. The objective that these evil powers have is nothing short of destruction. They want to mar, to twist, to destroy anything that carries the image of God, and that includes you and me. Really, um, if you're not a Christian today, it doesn't mean you're a friend of the devil. It may mean that, sadly, you are sharing his characteristic of opposition to God or rebellion against him, but certainly the devil is not your friend. He's not even the friend of those who overtly worship him, and there are such people, sad to say, in this world, but he's not their friend either. He hates all, even those who are stunned with the image of God merely by being immortal. He hates them too. We also saw his strategy, and that comes out in Deuteronomy 25, and always remember this, that like the lion stalking his prey, as Peter speaks about him in 1 Peter 5, the devil watches and waits patiently to identify the weak, those who are weary and tired, he then isolates them and moves in for the kill. And we attempted in some measure to apply that this morning. And please remember it. He will attempt to isolate you when you are weak and weary, and he will then pounce to devour. Now, of course, Amalek doesn't win this battle. The Amalekites here are the vanquished. They're not the victors. The victors of this battle are, in fact, Israel, the people of God. And although many of them are doing the fighting with the sword in their hand, it's quite obvious from the passage that the real secret of their strength, the secret of their victory, lies on the mountaintop where Moses is holding the rod of God in his hand. Obviously, God is teaching something of enormous significance to Israel by using the rod in this kind of way. And of course, as Paul writes in the New Testament, all these things are written for our admonition or our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we are to ask, what is God teaching through this rod? What did Israel learn? What were they supposed to learn? Which I'm sure most of them did learn. And what is it that we're supposed to learn? The secret of our spiritual strength in this world, that which enables us to conquer and to be victorious, lies in the rod of God. Now, that's extremely important because, well, I highlighted in the morning that prevention is better than cure. It always is. It's true in the spiritual life that Preventing the devil's onslaughts is far better than curing them when they come. And and the secret there to spiritual strength is in the defense. If we wear the defensive armor that God has given us in Ephesians chapter 6, then the devil makes no headway. But sad to say, we often leave some of that armor behind. And we find ourselves exposed on the battlefield, and Satan's darts are sometimes successful. But it's important to remember that even if Satan makes headway in your life, even if he manages to bring you to some extent back under his sway through the use of temptation or sin or something of that kind, that doesn't mean that the battle need be lost. Far, far from it. The point is that even when Amalek are prevailing here from time to time, all you need to do is look meaningfully upon the rod All Moses needs to do on his part, and I'll come to that later, is to make sure that this rod is lifted up and visible. Because there is an obvious connection here. I mean, you may not see it on the face of it, but there is an obvious connection between the visibility of the rod on the one hand and the people who need to see it on the other. 
It's not just the fact that when the rod rises, Israel prevail, and when the rod falls, they don't prevail. It's that when Israel see the rod raised, they prevail, and when they see it lowered, they begin to be defeated. So the key always to our spiritual health and our spiritual recovery, if need be, lies in this rod of God. Now that means that the first meaningful question for us in understanding this passage is, what really does this rod represent? What does it symbolize? It's obvious it represents something. After all, it's only a piece of wood. Lifting up a piece of wood or lowering it wouldn't affect anybody, unless it's somehow communicating something to the people who are seeing it. But what is it communicating? What is the rod for? Well, the key here lies in the name that Moses gives to the commemoration altar. We're told when the battle is over, he builds an altar. They worship, obviously, as we always should whenever God shows us any kindness and gives us any deliverance. And he names the altar, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my flag. Or, if you like, the Lord is my standard. So the rod functions in the battle as a kind of banner or a standard. And what's more, the banner represents the Lord. So the rod is a banner and the banner represents God himself. Now let's just break that up a little bit. First of all, the rod is meant to function here like a banner or a standard. Now, all armies have standards, regiments have standards. And these standards are special kinds of flags that function pretty much like banners. I mean, a banner is a, is a, is a big flag that communicates something. The word banner conveys that to us more easily than a standard. But a standard is communicating something too. And all the standards that, um, that armies or navies possess reflect something of the glory of their commander-in-chief. That's the purpose. I mean, it's easy to forget that all flags and banners are, are meant to be preaching things. It doesn't matter what the flag or banner is. Well, that's what the flag, I know you can design a flag that means nothing, but originally they're meant to preach. Take, for example, the Belgian flag, which has a, a thick strip of, uh, of black and a strip of uh, red and a strip of gold. And the, the teaching behind that flag is that um, the blackness of the night is transformed into a golden age by the shedding of blood. That's the message of the flag. Now, we just look at it and we see uh, a pretty flag, but it's supposed to speak. Now, all standards in the army or in the navy speak, and they speak something about the glory of the commander-in-chief. In our case, and in all cases in those days, it would be the glory of a king or a queen. Some aspect of their glory reflected on it. Now, when an army took these standards out to war, these standards were extremely important. Uh, the, the Roman legions, for example, in much later days, would carry these heavy and ornate standards. And um, they, they really valued them. In fact, uh, a Roman general fought a campaign simply to rescue a standard that had been captured. That's, that's how important these standards were. And they had a twofold strategic importance. The first importance of a standard was that it actually marked out the territory that was gained. Now, when you're in the thick of a fight with people all around you, it was, it's extremely easy to lose your bearings. But if you would lift up your eyes, you would see the standard that identified the ground that was under your control. And if you were in danger or if you were conf confused in any way at all, you could make your way towards the standard and you would be on safe ground. So it was a kind of rallying point, 
a strategic rallying point for the troops. So it was of strategic importance, but it was also of um, emotional importance in the sense that the standard simply inspired you. Now, things like this can have great symbolism in war. Sometimes not just what you see, but what you hear. Many a person recorded in the past that the stirring sound of the, of the bagpipes, for example, just made them more strong and courageous in battle. Similarly, the, uh, long, long ago, the sight of the, of the British uniform in red actually terrified uh, opponents or encouraged those who were just simply strengthened by the sight of it. Now, a standard is meant to function like that. You see an aspect of the Queen's glory, or now in our day, the King's glory. And that infuses you with a strength of sense of pride in your King, devotion and loyalty to the King, which is, of course, devotion to your country, devotion to the kingdom, devotion to its laws, and so on. Some people, of course, have great pride in these kind of things. You see some people who really love their country, and they wrap themselves in their flag or in their standard. So these standards are of huge importance. They remind you who and what you are actually fighting for. So this banner is important. Now then, what is the Lord's people's banner? What is our standard as Christians? Well, it's a good question, that, because, you know, some churches have mottos or symbols of some kind. Presbyterian churches historically uh, since the Reformation have tended to use the burning bush as a symbol. Nec tamen consumibatur. It was not however consumed. And the bush becomes there a, a picture of the church that is never consumed by the fires of persecution. Um, our own covenanter heritage to which we belong very often has a, a flag which says for Christ's crown and covenant. A reminder too is that the Lord Jesus is king and ought to be recognised as such in the country and that this country once actually pledged allegiance to him from parliament down um, in a solemn oath. So these mottos and symbols remind us of our identity perhaps or our heritage. But friends, our identity and heritage is not really Presbyterians or Covenanters or whatever, good as these things may be. We are something before we are that. We are something above that. What we are, of course, is Christians. And our banner is, of course, God himself. Jehovah Nissan. The Lord is my banner. And my banner is the Lord. What that means essentially for us right now in this passage is this, that when Moses lifted up this shepherd's staff, that was meant to communicate the glory of God to the Israeli army or to the people of God. It was meant to communicate the glory of God to the Lord's people. Now, of course, at one level that seems quite absurd. Um, you would expect that God's glory would be communicated in a far more spectacular manner than that. I mean, who's going to be inspired by a stick of wood? I'm quite sure the Amalekites had far more ornate standards than that, and that they planted them here and there. And, and the minute they saw the Israeli standard uh, at the top of the hill, they must have thought, well, is that the best you've got? I mean, it's a strange thing, but uh, the Lord always uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. It, it doesn't matter what God does. He always does it in a very unexpected way. And he does it in a way that honors humility and apparent weakness from a human perspective. He uses people who, who are very, very ordinary sometimes to accomplish his greatest work. Uh, Paul had to say to the Corinthians, who often despised the early Christian uh, preachers because they hadn't been trained like the Epicureans and the Stoics and so on. When they, when they spoke, for example, in the public square or in the Areopagus or anywhere like that, they, they, speak or, they spoke ordinary language, but they spoke it extremely powerfully. They didn't have the 
rhetorical skills of these people, which were often literally sophisticated. They didn't actually possess these. But Paul said to them, well, Oakley's speech, he says, is plain, and it doesn't stand maybe in the wisdom of men, but it does stand up in the power of God. And he says, not many mighty and not many noble have been chosen among you, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He always does, and he always will. Because God, speaking respectfully, is not impressed with the stuff that we are impressed with. Man, like the psalmist says, just walks in a vain show. And we're profoundly impressed by very human things, like wealth and splendor and the pride of life and things like that. As though God was impressed with that kind of thing. No, he's not. It's interesting that when we will hold our Christian festival, the only genuine Christian festival which there is under the New Covenant, things like Easter and Christmas and Ascension and things like that, are human inventions dating from the 4th century onwards. The only genuine Christian festivals are the Lord's Day and, of course, the sacraments which he has appointed. When we come to the sacrament, it's, it's unlike the feast day of of any other religious organization where they spread these wonderful meals and they have a wonderful time of festivity and where they to walk in the door and they see a little table and they see a loaf of bread and they see a cup of wine and they say, is that it? Well, yes, friends, that's it. Because even in the sacrament, God chooses this, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And he's able to take a mouthful of wine and a morsel of bread and to make it full of Christ for the benefit of your poor and needy soul. Because that's just what God does. He's not a respecter of persons or of human pride, but that's just the way God works. So this rod somehow communicates the glory of God. We can actually go further and say that the rod communicates the glory of their Messiah, who is, of course, the Son of God. Now, all the Lord's people from Genesis onwards, from the fall, were taught to believe that their deliverer would be someone from heaven who would actually stand as a substitute for themselves and for them and offer himself a sacrifice on their behalf. That's the reason for the original sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3. From that first sacrifice onwards, they are waiting for God's intervention in the form of a Messiah. And this rod is not just going to speak of God himself, but especially the glory of the Son of God, who is to be their saviour, their deliverer from all spiritual enemies. We read Isaiah chapter 11 where, as you remember, I said before we read that the royal household of David, from which the Messiah would spring, remember, he would come from the tribe of Judah and from the royal household of David. But God's work often, often goes really flat before he builds it up again. I, th I think it's one of the ways in which God just shows that the excellence of the power is always of himself and not of man. He sometimes allows things to go very, very low. And the royal household and the kingdom of God was reduced to a stump that to all appearances looked dead. I mean, I'm sure you've often passed trees that have been cut down and they're overgrown and they look as though they'll never come to life again. But what Isaiah sees is a, a little shoot of green appearing just a little bit away from the stump. This is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his weakness and humility, just a shoot but it's a green living shoot. And this shoot suddenly um, becomes a sapling. It becomes um, a new part of the tree that lives as a continuation of the tree. And it becomes so strong that it's a, a rod, a branch. And you'll notice as the Old Testament develops that one of the titles the Messiah has given is the branch of God because he's going to be so strong and so fruitful. But Isaiah, as Isaiah makes his way in that prophecy, he tells us that this rod, 
this branch will become a standard, a banner. And once this banner, he says, is lifted up, the Gentiles from all over the world will rally to this standard. And not only that, he says, but he will recall his own ancient people for the second time to come back and rally to this standard. Now, friends, we, we still wait for that day. Uh, I can't help but wondering sometimes if we're very near it. I mean, the Lord's eye is still on his ancient people, and our own eye should still be on his ancient people. There is certainly a tremendous success in gospel work amongst that ancient people, but the Lord will recover his people a second time, and until that happens, he will be gathering his people from all the Gentile kingdoms to this rod, this standard, which has become a banner to the Gentiles. Christ, our banner. Christ, our rod. But why is our Saviour represented as a stick of wood? Why is he represented as a shepherd's staff? Because at the end of the day, that's what Moses had. Whenever he used this staff, it was his own shepherd's staff that he had had 40 years in Midian. That's what he used. It was called the rod of God, but it was Moses' staff. Why is this staff representing Christ? Well, let me give three reasons for it. <clears throat> First of all, the staff represents the humility of our king. The greater the king normally, or queen, the greater the scepter that they carry. In the House of Parliament, you'll see a mace, <clears throat> which is, in its fundamental form, actually a shepherd's staff. That's really what it's supposed to be. But of course, it's encrusted with jewels, and it's extremely ornate. And as the mace lies there in Parliament, it is a reminder of royal sovereignty, that the ultimate sovereignty is opposed anyway to lie with the king. But here the, the staff that uh, is held up before Israel is a reminder that their king is a humble king. He's content to appear in this form. Because when God is going to save his people, he will do so by stooping down low. And he will be found in fashion as a man. Although he is in the form of God, which in the Greek means philosophically that he is God, nonetheless he takes upon himself the form of a servant. This genuine God becomes a genuine servant, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbles himself. Now it's a strange thing in one way to speak of God possessing humility. And it's almost difficult to define how it can be so. Uh, because you could, of course, on one hand ask, what has God got to be humble about? But humility means um, the ability uh, to stoop down. It means to have a condescending spirit. It means to be able to compassionate those who are beneath yourself. And God does exactly that. He humbles himself to look upon things in heaven and things upon the earth. Psalm 113. He humbles himself to look upon sinners. And when he is born a king in this world, he's not born in a palace, is he? He's not regaled in royal clothing, is he? He's born in a stable. He's laid in a feeding trough. And he's raised among the poor of this world. That is our king. And he's not ashamed to be humble. Because he humbles himself for your sake and for mine. The second thing the rod teaches us in connection with Christ is the power of God. Of course we're familiar with the fact that the rod of Moses spoke of power anyway. The staff is a kingly staff after all. Every king or queen has a scepter like the mace. The scepter always speaks about the power. So if you, if you see a, a, an ancient relief painting, for example, of a king or queen, 
Uh, you will see them with the staff, sometimes between their knees or at their feet, or they're holding it in their right hand. That's the power. And here what we are being told is that when God comes into this world in the form of humility, he also comes in power. There is genuine power emanating from this Son of God, even in his human form. Power enough to turn a battle and power enough to win it. We were thinking in the morning of the enormous power of Satan and the principalities and power powers and how vastly more powerful they are than you and than me. But their power, great as it is, is nothing in comparison to this. The sheer force, the spiritual force of goodness and of love and of truth that emanates from this rod of God is enough to turn the battle. It's enough to change a soul. It's enough to change a culture. It's enough to tear down evil in a nation and replace it with good. It brought a reformation and it can bring another reformation too. That is the power that emanates from this rod of God. The third thing that the rod conveys is the love of God. If you go back, for example, and ask why is a scepter the symbol of kingly power? It's because it's actually a shepherd's staff originally. So why is a shepherd's staff the symbol of kingly authority? Why? Why was the scepter modelled on the shepherd's staff? For a very simple reason, friends. Because the original duty that a king or queen had was to rule for the benefit of the people. A shepherd's staff is, is not for the sheep's harm. The shepherd's staff is for the well-being of the sheep. And so to see a mace or to see a scepter is meant to convey to the queen or king and to his or her subjects that their authority is there for a good. Now that's not always how it's used in this world. We know that. But I'll tell you something. It's how the Lord Jesus wields his scepter. It's in care for his sheep and in love for his sheep. So much so that even as their king, he will lay down his life for his sheep. That's what the good shepherd does. I often used to wonder at the phrase, the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. I remember as a young boy thinking, well, how does that? Which shepherd gives life for sheep? I mean, have you ever heard of a shepherd giving his life for sheep? No. They love their sheep and they feed their sheep, but they, they won't die for them. But the point there in the Gospel is that that is what the good shepherd does. In other words, he's different from other shepherds in, in, in that precise way. That is, his love and care for the sheep means that he actually is willing to die for them. So the rod tells us that our deliverer is coming down in humility as our king. He's going to exercise his power on our behalf and he's going to deliver us in his love. Now you'll notice that this rod is taken up onto a hill where it can be seen by the people. That is telling us, first of all, that this rod or standard must be visible to the whole army. And of course it does. I mean, if you just go back to the physical battle that's being fought, every army has to see their standard. We need to see our Lord and Saviour too. And therefore, he is lifted up. I, he says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to himself. Now that's a very pregnant statement because it contains a lot inside it that really only releases itself when we think about it. I, if I be lifted up. What did he mean by that? Well, first he meant his crucifixion because John goes on to tell us that he meant that. He says that he said that signifying by what death he would die. So, first of all, lifted up from the ground in crucifixion means more than that. He also means lifted out of the grave in resurrection. 
He also means more than that. Lifted up from the earth in ascension to sit at the right hand of God. I, if I be lifted up, he says, will draw all men to myself. If I'm crucified, I'll draw men to myself. If I am resurrected from the earth, I will draw men to myself. If I am ascended to heavenly glory, to the place of authority and power at my Father's right hand, I will draw all men to myself. Especially the cross. If you want to see the humility of God, if you want to see the love of God, and if you want to see the power of God, look no further than that. That is the most concentrated display in space and in time of God's humility, his love, and his power. I could add more to that. I could say righteousness and justice and so on. In fact, it's the most concentrated display of all God's attributes. There's a whole host of paradoxes at the cross. There's a host of them. But these things come out there. The humility of Christ. Yes. He was humble enough to be born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. But to be honest, friends, that goes nowhere near doing justice to our Lord's humility. Paul goes on to say that being found in fashion as a man, and behold that in itself, he humbled himself, even to the death of the cross. That is his humility. To be stripped naked, flogged, spat upon, beaten, hung up publicly and crucified. Yes, God underwent that in our nature. He underwent that in our nature to teach us well, what, what humility is, for one thing. To teach us what humility is. He took the way of the cross. He was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He came down low. And it's on that hill as well, when this rod is lifted up on the hill visibly, that's actually where we see the love of God too. I mean, who, who can't look at the cross? I mean, who, sorry, who can look at the cross and not see the love of God in it? It's obvious that sin deserves judgment and justice. That is obvious. It's obvious that sin is so heinous and so evil that it needs to be judged. But who would have thought that God would step into the breach and absorb that judgment into himself? Who would have thought that? The Lord Jesus himself said that greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But Christ didn't lay down his life for his friends. In one sense he did, of course. In another sense he did not. For it was while we were yet enemies that he died for us. And is that not a wonderful thing? I mean, you can conceive of yourself dying for someone you know and love. Maybe you can conceive of yourself dying for somebody you don't know. Can you conceive of yourself dying for somebody who actually hates you and spends all their life in opposition to you? I very much doubt it. So on the hill there's God's humility and God's love. But on the hill too there's God's power. Strange that. <clears throat> Paul tells us that Christ was crucified in weakness. <coughs> and there's something tremendously weak about a man who's been battered and abused and hung there, like I said, stripped, made the laughingstock of everyone. Weak. In fact, it was so weak that the Jews thought that the crucifixion was the final nail in the coffin regarding his claim to be the Messiah. Well, that's out the window. Whatever you thought before, there's no way that that's who he is. But the power that comes from the cross, the power, it started immediately, you know. Started immediately. When he turned to the thief at his right hand and said, Today you shall be with me in paradise. That's astonishing. This man is not supposed to be wielding any kind of scepter from the cross, but the strange thing is that he does wield a scepter, even in the hour of his greatest weakness. 
the Roman centurion converted by watching him and hearing him. The other three Roman soldiers are also converted by watching him and by hearing him. This man has become the power of God to all who believe. And he's still wielding that power from the cross. I mean, in one sense our Lord is saving from heaven, but he's still saving through the cross. The cross is the point where he touches us. The cross is the point where you reach the Lord and where the Lord reaches you. You must interact with him on the cross. I mean, you can't interact with him as it were directly in heaven as the King and Lord of glory. The only way to him is still through the cross that he bore. That's where you find him as your representative suffering and dying for you. And the wonderful thing is that if you come via the cross, you touch him. He touches you and you live. From that point onwards, you live. The cross, Paul says, when he was going to Rome, well, naturally Paul wasn't a particularly um, bold or courageous person. In fact, he said to the people in Corinth, which was quite an intimidating city in the first century, he, he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And when he went to Rome for the first time, that must have been increased tenfold. It was, it was his duty to preach the gospel in the, in the sprawling metropolis of Rome. But he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because, he says, it is the power of God unto salvation. To all who believe it, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And I've known its power, and I've tasted its power, I've felt its power. And it can be the same power for you too. The fact of the matter is that the Christ who hung there on that cross today is the only power that is able to, live, to deliver you, as Tennyson said, from the jaws of death and from the mouth of hell. And not only is he able to do it, he will do it if you ask him to do it. So as Christ is crucified, we are to understand that God's standard is being unfurled on the top of a hill. I've said this so often before, probably here as well as everywhere else, but I think it's a, a very interesting fact. The world was originally uh, with just one continent, really, before the flood. And um, if, if you still today, I mean, if you look at the map, you can see how everything fits into everywhere else how Africa fits into America and so on. If you press the landmass of the earth together, you'll find that Jerusalem is just pretty much bang on in the middle. There's a way still in which the Middle East is the centre of the earth. Isn't it interesting that Jerusalem itself is built on a hill? That Calvary itself was a hill on top of a hill? And it was a hill on top of a hill in the centre of the earth? And that there God ordained 2,000 years ago that this pole be erected and his own son be crucified upon it. As a standard, a banner, proclaiming, pro proclaiming the mercy of God to the ends of the earth. Isn't it significant that on the top of the cross, the king of the Jews is written in the legal language of the Romans, in the philosophical language of the Greeks, and in the religious language of the Hebrews. Telling the whole world, whoever they are, whatever culture they come from, whatever their background or education, that this is the man. This is the God-man. This is the Redeemer from heaven who is able and willing to deliver every soul from everlasting death. He's lifted on the top of a hill. And of course, by doing so, God is effectively saying, like the Romans or any other army who would plant a standard, they're saying, this is my territory, by the way. God says, this is my world. This is my world. This world belongs to my son. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, let the gospel be preached. And let it be preached to all the nations. Paul tells us that when he went to Galatia, the province of Galatia, which our own ancestors really came from, 
the, the word Geotach and Galatia come from the, the same word. But when he went there, first of all, we're told that he placarded the gospel to them. That doesn't mean that he made nice pictures of it. It means that he, he just graphically portrayed Christ crucified to them. That's what we need, a Christ crucified. And he was willing to placard it to the ends of the earth. And of course, Christ is telling us effectively to come and to join that army ourselves. To come and join that army ourselves. Rally to my standard. I said a few weeks ago that Christ is the only advocate who never lost a case. He's also the only general who never lost a soldier in a campaign. Once you rally to the standard, you're safe. But how do we see it? Well, you see it in preaching and in praying. That's how the Lord Jesus is lifted up. And when you understand that, the whole image becomes plain on the mountaintop. As Moses lifts up the rod, the church prevails. As the rod is lowered, Amalek prevails. The message is very simple. Let the church see the Lord. Moses is a prophet. Lift up the prophet. Lift up the priest. Lift up the king. Let Christ have the preeminence. Let Christ be preached. Friend, it's very easy to preach using the name of Jesus 200 times in a sermon without really preaching Christ at all. Let him be really preached as to who he is as a king, demanding our allegiance and our obedience, as a priest forgiving our sins, and as a prophet instructing us in the way that we're to walk. Let him be lifted up and preached like that. Wouldn't it be a marvellous day if, again, in all the pulpits of our land, the gospel was genuinely preached? I mean, in the majority, it seems to me, of the pulpits of the land, he's not actually preached anymore. He really isn't. Not as who he is, but a kind of pseudo-Christ or a pseudo-Jesus that is not the one that we see in the New Testament. But let him be lifted up as the source of all our strength and joy and peace. You know that as a Christian. Sometimes you look for the remedy. Sometimes you look for the secret of sanctification. The secret of spiritual growth. And you think, well, it comes in a formula of some kind. No, it comes from meditative, prayerful contemplation on the Lord of glory. Your substitute who gave himself for your sins. That is the source of spiritual strength. That is the source of love in your heart. And that is the source of joy in the Holy Spirit. It's to think upon the Lord. Everything should take us back to the Lord. And if we find ourselves losing strength, go back. A fresh look at the Lord dying for you, a sinner. And when you do look at the cross again, you're constrained to say, oh, what a king I have. How great is his glory in this standard. How great is God as I see him unfurled in the cross of Jesus Christ. And how worthy he is of fighting for, living for, and if need be, dying for. And that, of course, is my duty. It's my duty. It's every minister of the gospel's duty to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ before us as a saviour for our sins. But he's also lifted up in prayer. It's no accident that the hands that are raised to hold up the rod is actually the symbol that is used so often for prayer. As Paul says to Timothy, lifting up holy hands in prayer without wrath and without doubting. Now you would think that Moses himself, as a great prophet of God, would be strong enough to keep the rod up. The fact of the matter is he's not. His brother Aaron, who will shortly become a priest, he is called to hold up his hand, as is her, another close colleague and friend. They are both there to hold him up so that he can hold up the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember a petition that I used to often hear when I was young in prayer meetings, uh, that people would hold up the minister's hands. This is what they meant. This is what they meant. 
because Christ will actually be only lifted up as long as he is preached and the preachers are prayed for. And I don't think any of us realise the importance of that. Let me tell you this, friends, that without prayer, the preacher's hands will weaken. I guarantee you that. And the power will disappear. It's extremely important for us to remember that. And without prayer, the preacher's hands will weaken. And that will mean that the rod will be lowered and the people of God will not see it. My time has gone. Can I just say something quickly in conclusion? I just want you to notice the effect this has on the church. It's very straightforward. When the church sees the Lord, she prevails. When he is somehow obscured, the world prevails. <clears throat> What's happened today in the church is not difficult to see or to assess. <clears throat> the world is coming. <clears throat> It's not so much that the church has come into the world, but the world has come into the church. And the gospel is obscured. But when the Lord is lifted up in all his radicalness, after all this is a radical king, and a radical priest, and a radical prophet, make no mistake about that, what happens is that the church reorientates and begins to fight, begins to fight for our culture, begins to fight for her children under her care, begins to fight for godly homes and for godly marriages. The church begins to be interested in really rescuing the lives of people who are without God and without hope in the world. We all become earnest and anxious for these things because suddenly we remember that there's a heaven and we remember that there's a hell and that Christ is the way to escape the one and to enter the other. And when these things are impressed upon us, we are reorientated and we are refocused and Amalek knows it. Amalek knows the difference between a dead church and a living one. The world knows the difference between a living Christian and a sleeping Christian. Between a living congregation and a dead congregation. The world knows it. Because as Jesus said, the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of the light. And what about Amalek? Well, of course, they begin to lose the battle. In the morning, they might have laughed at the standard that Israel unfurled. Come the evening when the sun was going down, it's a different story. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You know, I sometimes think the church has ditched her standard and decided to get a new one, that she's embroidered herself and which looks more attractive to the world. Just toss it out. Take the old one back in. Jesus Christ and him crucified because the world will give way under that. Uh, different gospels have no transformative power. They create an effervescent froth which just evaporates away. The real gospel changes lives. It really changes lives. Old and young, rich and poor, black and white, changes lives. Of every kind. There was a famous sorry, I'm going well past my time, but there was a famous confrontation uh, long ago at, I think it was at High Corner in London between, uh, a, there was a Christian preacher there and an atheist came up to him and said um, <clears throat> that, uh, you know, he was quite willing to take him on. And um, the preacher said, well, I'll tell you what, people are used to, to these kind of debates. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, I, I'll take uh, with me 40 people tomorrow who have been completely delivered from all kinds of um, poverty, vice, crime, the most degraded, hopeless people, and I'll bring them here as a result of what I'm preaching. And I want you tomorrow, he says, to bring 40 people whose lives have been powerfully transformed by the atheistic message that you preach. And the atheist just basically walked away, shrugging his shoulders. It's a pretty good challenge, actually. The more you think about it, the more effective that challenge is. The gospel works. I know people for whom it has worked. I hope to God I'm one of them, but I know plenty of them. I know plenty of them. And we need to believe, friends, that as we preach and as we pray, that this cross, this cross begins to cast its spell. If you pardon the language, 
and it begins to exert its kind of magnetic charm and it begins to pull and draw people to himself. And as you begin to see its wonder, you begin to feel it, you begin to feel the power of the cross. If you're on Amalekites, if you're with the Amalekites or if you're on their side, you know what my advice to you is? My advice to you is just to change allegiance, that's all. I don't know under what standard uh, you're fighting, but see this flag, recognize it, recognize it as the victor's flag. This is the king, the lord of glory. The battle's actually won already. Change sides, change allegiance. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Let us pray. Oh Lord, there is a great difference between being blotted out from under heaven as the Amalekites were and having your names written in the book of life as those of the Lord's peoples were. And Lord grant that our names may be written there. We may be numbered tonight amongst the dead, but by faith in this man, we can be numbered amongst the living. And may nothing rob ourselves of the joy and the peace and the love, and indeed of the power that belongs to us, having tasted and seen the goodness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May he always be lifted up before us, and may we lift him up before others. King of kings, Lord of lords. In his name we pray, Amen. Let's uh, close singing in Psalm 98. <clears throat> oh, sing a new song to the Lord. For wonders he hath done, so God has completed a work of salvation, and he's done it himself, his right hand, the hand of power, and his holy arm, him victory hath won. The Lord God his salvation hath caused to be known, his justice, that's in the cross, in the heathen sight, he openly hath shown. He's remembered his ancient people too, he mindful of his grace and truth to Israel's house hath been. But there's also this, that the salvation of our God, all ends of the earth, have seen. And then there's a call to the whole earth to rejoice. <clears throat> Let all the earth unto the Lord send forth a joyful noise. Lift up your voice aloud to him. Sing praises and rejoice. And of course he sees that through the lens of the temple in which he worships. With David's instruments, with David's psalms. And they're to rejoice there before the Lord, verse 9, because he comes. This is the second coming. To judge the earth comes he. He'll judge the world with righteousness, his folk with equity, with justice. The opening a four stands as we stand and sing. <laughs> Oh, uh-huh.
the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.